Hi, this is Jack Donovan, and uh, you are listening to or watching Bataire, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here, as always, with uh, C.B. Robertson, author of many fine books. I, I, I can't miss them all right now. <laughs> uh, but today, we, we were talking about this the other day and trying to figure out what to talk about, and we decided to call it, kind of as a joke, but kind of not, uh, zoological humanism. And what this really, this discussion really started as for me is back, and you can find this podcast on our site or in our streams, um, back when we uh, all got together in Nevada and did a fire ritual there, we did a live podcast in which we talked about the nature of goodness. And we kind of determined that you really can't always determine what good is. Um, because it, it, there is a lot of specificity. Well, I'm not even going to try and say that again. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, it, it's specific to, to different tribes, to cultures, to ideologies. Uh, they all determine their own level of good. And the idea of an objective good is kind of a, a difficult thing to chase. And uh, no one really ever finds it. Uh, so, but one thing that I said at that time was that if there was going to be a universal good for humans, because that's who we're talking about, then it would probably be to perpetuate the survival of the human race. And that bad would be making us extinct. I think from the, from a, the most basic standpoint, for us, good would be to continue. Uh, beyond all that, you know, we can fight fight the rest of it out forever, which is exactly what humans would do. But, uh, you know, and that brought us around to some of the conversations that are happening right now. I think that if you would have asked anyone 200 years ago, if uh, you think that humans should survive on the earth, they would say yes. And I, that would be in general agreement. But today there's such this creeping nihilism in which there are a lot of people that just don't, for whatever reason, there's environmentalists who don't think we deserve to be on this earth and we should let the uh, animals take it back over because uh, we're gross and they're good. Uh, and of course, we would be the only ones who would be able to evaluate that, of course. But, and then there's all kinds of people now, especially uh, this nihilism that turns into transhumanism, which is not unrelated to this kind of afterlife seeking that we have in this kind of despise of the body and people who are focused on the afterlife because they're looking to transcend humanity too. And that's their ultimate goal is to transcend humanity. But what we have now is people like AI accelerationists who want, are actually cheering on the end of the human race because they think the singularity is gonna replace us and it's going to be so much better that we're going to be obsolete. And I've always likened them to Cthulhu cultists uh, in the sense of like they, they just want to be eaten last. They, they, want the th they want the thing to destroy everyone, but they want to be eaten last. And, you know, I've kind of thrown out that if there was, if there was such a thing as evil, if, if the good is for the human race to survive and there's such a thing as evil that's universal to all mankind, it would be the survival of mankind. And... Uh, evil would be these people who want us to die. Uh, you know, I, I feel that that's, that's reasonable. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. 
Uh, but a lot of people don't seem to have a problem with it. Uh, there's a there's a lot of transhumanism out there that they're like, oh yes, the singularity replaces. It's going to be good. It's it's been what every uh, sci-fi dystopian movie has been about for the past however many years. But um, there are still a lot of people who are like, no, that's fine. We probably deserve it or whatever. <laughs> so so we got to talking about this and. Uh, I was like, we need to take a pro-human position. Like, what is a pro-human position? And so we started to look into, you know, obviously then you get humane, humanism, all these things that sound like they should be pro-human positions. But in fact, uh, if you dig into the definitions of them, they are not necessarily that. Do you want to take it from there as to what you found as far as the definitions of humanism, which sounds like it would be a good idea, but maybe isn't? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you uh, humanism goes back um, quite a ways there, there's some people who take it all the way back to like Cicero and around, but, but really it it came out of the enlightenment. It was enlightenment thinkers who really began talking about it. um, Humanism. And and we saw a sort of resurgence in its use um, from Jean-Paul Sartre, the, Marxist existentialist, and uh, I've been going down a Heidegger rabbit hole recently, and it's funny because I have I, you ever read that play? Uh, I mean, obviously, you wrote several plays, but you ever read uh, No Exit? No, no, I, I got all those uh, other people is basically what it's yeah, it, it kind of folds nicely in the discussion. Is well, the theme of it is that hell is actually other people. I read a few pages of nausea, like a decade ago and i i didn't hate it but i wasn't in, enchanted by it either um sure. and, and the more i've learned about sart the more i'm like nah um the uh the, the the real impressive french existentialist was uh camus the the only one who didn't go marxist uh, <laughs> but uh i the the heidegger piece i've been diving into is um i, I forget the title precisely it was like letter on the question of humanism or a letter on humanism or something. And it wasn't directly a response to Jean-Paul Sartre, but it was kind of a response because um, Heidegger had been being called an existentialist as, as a note of praise by these French existentialists like Sartre, who wrote a book called Existentialism is a Humanism. And Heidegger very much rejected the label. He said, I'm, I'm not an existentialist. I'm, I'm doing phenomenology here. I'm trying to get into uh, the experience of being so that eventually someday we can do proper ontology, which is what philosophy has to get back to. Um, and he very much rejected um, this label of humanism. And, and one of the lines from his work was, um, humans are not lords of the earth were shepherds. And he, he was trying to say, we, we do guide things. We do have some role to play, but we're not absolute masters. We have inherited certain things. We've inherited a certain nature. We've inherited a, um, we've inherited a history, a culture. We've inherited language and stories. And we can guide things and shape things, but we're not absolute masters over this in the way that existentialists um, who are trying to be humanists 
and put humans at the center, like Sartre and like these others, say it is our responsibility to to take control of our own lives, which is like I'm I'm on board with that to a degree. It's the degree that is the the problem. Is they they take an absolutist and a tacitly blank slatist view of the human animal in how much responsibility uh, humans have for our direction and path. And um, it's the, um, the, the, the problem, I think, is in the, the extremity of the position. Um, and so to me, humanism, the label human, like you could have the same debate about feminism. There's many different people who have many different debates about the real meaning of feminism and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about women. It's about centering our focus on women. And um, with humanism, it's about centering our focus on humans, which on the one hand is kind of nice. And to your point about the nihilism, it does seem like a problem that we're running into, especially with the, um, the, the ecological uh, worried folks, uh, is, is that they have so objective of a notion of what good, I think we talked about this in the podcast with Dustin too, people who have so objective of a view of good that uh, our subjective interests are of no concern. And I think we had talked, uh, co contrasting borrowing from um, the holy nihilism idea where you have a singular point of evil that is all rejecting. And then from there, there are diverging branches of goodness. And something can be good or bad according to one diverging standard of excellence. And one standard of good could be competing with another standard of good over here. Um, and that's just the tension of existence. And what is good for us might be really bad for mosquitoes that carry malaria. It's just the way it is. I would like it if human existence was more at odds with the existence of bedbugs, speaking from a couple years of experience in that world. Uh, I would like them to go away totally, or at least back to the bat caves from whence they came. But, uh, you, you know, a, a sufficiently objective perspective, which is what a lot of these people seem to want in their concept of good. They said whatever is good has to be objectively good or else it isn't really good. And that's the that there is no room within that within that framework exempting some very acrobatic intellectual maneuvers to distinguish the wellness of a human being from the wellness of a bedbug or you know some other critter and 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 you see that in a lot of these people uh, I, I love dogs as much as the next person but there's a particular kind of misanthropic person who says dogs are better than humans right. and and like that, that's, that's right. That, that feels like the, the gateway to um, this kind of broader objective misanthropy that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, I would say that misanthropes are just idealists who are disappointed. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, like they're basically, because what they're saying is that people aren't who they, people aren't as if, as the, I wish they would be. Yeah. Therefore, people are terrible. But you made up that definition of how you think that they should be. You didn't base it on 
how humans actually are. Right. Uh, you know, and so that's that's a little unfair. <laughs> you know, like oh, I expect humans to behave in the way that they've never demonstrated that they behave at all. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and whereas like dogs just love you for existing, and of course you like them better. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not against this. If if I had to choose a death, I just want to go to sleep in a pile of dogs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like, well, right. that sounds real nice <laughs> you know like I, I mean i love my dog but uh and, and i just like dogs generally yeah. I'll, I'll hang out with other people's dogs but uh that doesn't mean that they're better than humans right and that doesn't mean that you know that i joke those kind of people are like species traders basically um you know, that's, <laughs> you're you can every other species cares about itself and not necessarily even the whole species, but the individual, because they're not able to think yeah. in that kind of way, even though they probably do instinctually, but they, they're not consciously saying the cause of the pig is mine and mine, <laughs> you know, that, that's, yeah. no, no pig is saying that. Yeah. But obviously they want pigs to survive right? Or, because that's their pigs. Now, you know? and there is an asterisk there, um, which comes from Mark Zuckerberg of all people, um, because it, it, too, too far down that line of thought lies the, the ethno-nationalist crowd and like oh yeah keep going um <laughs> the, the, the mark zuckerberg uh line and what's beautiful about this line is that it was descriptive it wasn't prescriptive right mark zuckerberg observed people care a hundred times more about the squirrel that died in their neighborhood than they do about ten thousand people dying on the other side of the planet right and i think that's i think that's not just true but um it would be inhuman to expect people to care more about abstract uh, ideas, really, because that's what 10,000 people in the other side of the world are to you experientially uh, than to living organisms in your neighborhood. I think it's I think it's perfectly normal to love your dog more than you love uh, an unknown stranger yeah. now legally i think it's good that we have preferences for the lives of people over the lives of dogs but uh like in a combat scenario i care more about my canine unit than i do about like the enemy um right. and, and you know you see this in like police dog workers whereas like that dog is not just a companion but like a co-worker and a valued team member and we really are symbiotic animals there uh, that depend upon each other and they're, they're a part of our little community they're a part of our experience of existence and so forth they're they're a part of the human story going back however many thousand years um but that that doesn't make them human beings but uh we we have a an intertwined relationship right absolutely and so yeah massive numbers of people i mean i wrote about that in becoming a barbarian obviously too and that's uh um you know, you can't care about people that you've never met, right? In a way, and we what we have is the media makes us, you know, it encourages us uh, to care about people we don't know. But it's a very select group of people we, they've chosen who we're supposed to care about because of how sexy the story is and you know how useful it is to their purposes and all that. So it's like you know, Jimmy could you know get hit by a car down the street. And you wouldn't know about it because it wouldn't be on the news because it's being, you know, some there's some war somewhere or something bigger that you're supposed to care about. Yeah. And uh, and so it's 
Yeah, I mean, obviously we can't care about all of humanity at once, but I think that we could all agree that we would like humanity itself <laughs> to survive. Yeah. Because but, that's, well, that's, yeah, I mean, I've never yes. read your, your letter to Amway thing, but like, it seems like it goes into that general direction because then you're talking about your line and, and, yes. and your relatives. And, and also, I mean, for me, even, I don't have, I'm the end of my line, um, but uh, it's, you know, Oh, I, I need my ideas to move forward. My, my legacy is my ideas. And if humans die out, then my ideas die too. Right. Uh, so, so uh, I mean, I think everyone, even, even if you don't have kids, you have an interest in human beings continue, uh, continuing because if you've done any good in the world or you've done anything that you're proud of and that you want to last, then you want people to be able to appreciate it. Exactly. The, uh, the, the, the way I try to explain the idea of the onway, which is this intergenerational identity, is that it, it has. Uh, I'm I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I try to say there's basically three components. There's the physical material that makes up you. Um, there is the uh, there's the the form, the blueprint, the instruction manual, so to speak, the 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 DNA you might say, or the blueprint of a building. And there's the history, you know, the where, where where you've been, where you've come from, and all of these things are shifting over time. Um, and you know, not all of us, you know, create ideas. Not all of us genetically move into the future. Not all of us have history that survives. But little bits of all of us move forward and intertwine in, in all of this. And um, you know, we we aren't just the material. But we're also not just the ideas. And I think that I get to return to the the ostensible title um, question here with with humanism is there's this danger of going into this kind of Marxist notion of thinking of ourselves as a species being, as if we are all a, a singular organism together. And um, I, I don't remember if I included it in the book or not, but one of my favorite proverbs is this um, Arab uh, saying it is me against my brother, me and my brother against the family, me and my family against the tribe, me and the tribe against the world. And it captures the, 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 the tension that exists. So it's like, we're not just competing against meteors and extinction events, the way that, you know, existential risk nerds like Nick Bostrom want us to. It's like, no, we're, we're competing with each other too. And, uh, you know, we, at, at, at one level, Humans and all other mammals are competing with the insects for dominance of the world. Uh, at another level, we're competing with other mammals. We, we uh, kill wolves and wolves sometimes kill us. And we're also competing with each other. And, uh, you know, there's, there's this nested tension in the experience of existence and humanism to the degree that it tries to unite us in one, in one singular identity um risks uh cutting against the actual experience uh and in some sense the actual nature of life the the role we have inherited and inhabit in relation with existence and with each other exactly and that's why i i started talking about zoological humanism because you know, obviously that is what is known as humanism uh, we, we've talked about. We also looked a lot of things up, and it seems to mostly just be atheism. 
uh, and uh, right. that seems the to be humans the center. They, they care wrong. most about there not being a god, really. That's that's a uh, you know seem you know and uh, but what I meant by zoological humanism is to actually look at human nature and our species as it is, as an animal, rather than as this magical we can all come together. Fantasy fairy tale that has nothing to do with the history of the human race, nothing to do with anything that you could study about humans if you would try. Right. It's a fantasy. And uh, in the way that it, and it, it grows out of a lot of overactive empathy and also a lot of blank slate theory, uh, which is, you know, the idea for those of you who haven't been introduced to that. It's just a way of talking about the idea that humans are unlike any animal that's ever existed in that somehow we can be magically reprogrammed in any way. And, uh, you know, they, it, we have no instincts and no real nature, yeah. so to speak. And that's a ridiculous idea, but it was extremely popular. And it's, you know, it, fall, it folds into humanism. Uh, the humanism that you were talking about, because like we can use words to change everything, you know, we can, but you can't, I can't use words to grow a new arm. (laughs) (laughs) We have the limitations of our bodies Mm -hmm. and our, our bodies inform our psychologies. They, They influence our psychologies. And, you know, you don't have to go through and find a gene for everything that you can possibly do, but there is a real, influence that your body has on your drives. I mean, obviously there's hormones, there's all kinds of things like that. And yeah, you can change those, but changing them also has effects as we're seeing with many people who are trying to change their hormones uh, too far um, and try to become something that they're not. Uh, There are limitations on the human body and a pro-human philosophy. And that's why I was joking, calling it a humanist philosophy, a pro-human philosophy that actually embraces what human beings are as an animal would say, no, there are limits. This is what we are. We, I am not a bird. I am not a tree. I am not, I'm not a chimpanzee. That's a rhyme. Uh, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not a bird. I'm not a bee. I'm not a chimpanzee. I'll shout that (laughs) in the crowd someday. Uh, But uh, I can't just be anything. I can only be a male human. Yeah. And the, the place to shout that is at a is at an other kin uh, conference. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a it was a low comment, but um, but yeah, no, ab- absolutely. As far as these these constraints and these the the problem, I feel like with this word humanism and with many words like this is that it's very easy to fall into false dichotomies and say, well, what is the opposite of uh, of a God-centered world. Well, it's a human-centered world. What's the opposite of a human-centered world? Well, it must be a God-centered world. Or you you could actually come up with an infinite number of opposite um, things. We were sort of toying around with it. And I was like, could you do like virtuism? I, I don't think that works because like the virtue, as you pointed out, like the virtues would have to be human-specific. Because excellence in flight is maybe the virtue of a seagull, but not of a human being. Um, so like that, even that falls back to the human category, but it's not, it's not human humanity as a whole. And um, 
one commentator's take on Heidegger's take on humanism was that when you look at what composes humanity, that that inheritance, that not blank slate, what we what we start with, both from birth and culturally, linguistically, and all this, um, putting the entire burden of responsibility of shaping who we want to become in the grand sense is actually profoundly dehumanizing in that it alienates us from the components that we derive our identity from, uh, which include the ideals of objectivity. So it actually becomes self-defeating in, in a circular manner, but um, it's, but, but to, having the foundation be the biology. Uh, first of all, I think Aristotle would be quite proud and, and happy with that. <laughs> But it's um, it, it just feels so uh, sane. I was talking about this with with some of the other guys in the order. Might have been in in our chat actually, about how um, to me it seems like maybe two thirds of marriages could be instantly improved if both husbands and wives were reminded daily that their spouse is a mammal. Just that, <laughs> just that, just remind them that their spouse is a mammal. And yeah. they're they're um, you know driven and influenced by mammalian inputs, you know things like illness and hunger and just like all those other basic lowly mammalian things that are um, very easily overlooked a lot of times. Um, and just just remembering that goes. I think I think Christopher Hitchens actually said something similar when he was reminding people to always remember that they're was it their politicians or their religious leaders maybe both or remember that they're mammals um, <laughs> it's, it's a nice check on um you know excessive trust in in those kinds of people yeah well i, I think this this kind of human-centered uh zoological perspective really is grounded you know, it's people get mad that we're animals, but again, it's like being it's like being transgender and being mad that you're like the wrong gender or something like that. It's it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's not okay. You're mad that you are what you are, and you have no idea how to be anything else. You have absolutely no experience in the world that would lead you to know what it is to be anything but what you are. Right. Uh, you can observe things, but you can't. I cannot get into my mind. Uh, in the mind of my dog over there, who's thankfully stopped chewing on that bone, which is loud. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I mean, I can't understand what it is to be Spike. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and in a way that, like, uh, you know, men who want to be women actually have no idea how to, what that experience from cradle to grave is like. Right. My, my wife had a friend whose husband decided he was a woman. And um, the, the, her her friend's complaint immediately was, um, is this how you think we act? Because the guys who transition to women, the, they're, as a, as a general rule, I'm sure this isn't true of all of them, hashtag not all, but like the general rule is that they play these caricatures of the most exaggerated female traits. And it's like, you're you're playing the part of a woman as perceived by men. Yes. It's like your nature 
actually shapes your perception of the other thing. You can't actually get to that other place um, because you can't even perceive in that way. For for philosophy nerds, one of the um, most popular and famous uh, essays of the last century, really, I think, um, there's this guy named Thomas Nagel who wrote this paper called, um, I think it is called, What Is It Like to, to Be a Bat? And it's all about the gap in perception between human beings and bats as it pertains to consciousness and the exploration of the nature of consciousness. And his idea is, we assume it's probably like something to be a bat. Um, but we, we have no access to what that could possibly be like, be, uh, not only because we don't echolocate, but because our whole lives and our lifespans and our uh, existence is different. And, and there's a, an intractable, unbridgeable gap uh, between the experience of you know, humans and the experience of this uh, conscious experience of bats. And at a much smaller scale, there's probably something similar going on between um, people and uh, other people. Not just men and women, but uh, people who speak one language and people who speak another language. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more commonality, certainly, but uh, there's a big, well, right. there is, there is uh, you know, I used to always say like a language gap or a, a, uh, a you know, there's, you know, there's something about Eastern Europeans that's a little bit different. <laughs> you, you know, like that's, uh, you know, like a, they're, they're going to come at you in a different way about different things. And it's, it's, you know, they'll surprise you with stuff like that we don't just take for granted being like American. Uh, and, and they'll be they'll be pushy sometimes and like be and be, ag be aggressive in unnecessary ways, <laughs> you know. Uh, but you know, it's just a different and it's like a walk of life thing. I mean, that's a that's a cultural thing, and that's that's where the argument for so much of this reprogramming stuff comes from. Is they're like, see how people are different. What if we just rewrite the script for everybody? Yes, and that's the plan. But again, that it, there are boundaries of what is human. And that's, like I said, the, as you said, and I said earlier, um, the idea of everyone on earth loving one another and not breaking into smaller tribal groups and caring about everyone equally and uh, you know, learning to agree about everything is literally the most hum inhuman thing that you could possibly ask us to do. It'd be like asking, you know, like... Uh, you know, monkeys to stop picking lice out of each other's hair, you know, like, they, or, or whatever it is that monkeys do, because they're monkeys, you know, like, they, it's so specific. Obviously, you can, we, we're trainable mm. to a certain extent, to, to a great extent. Uh, we're very trainable, but there are limits of how much we can be trained and still be, you know, flourishing. And that's why I like this idea of zoology in the sense of like, if you were going to put us in a zoo, and that was actually, I brought this up, someone asked, I, oh, I, did, I just did it, I think, an Instagram thing, so not on here, but uh, um, about influential books. And uh, this is called The Naked Ape. And it, I think it's 1969. I mean, it's, a, it's an old book, but there was a bunch of, there were a bunch of people, it's basically written by a zoologist about humans, studying them as if you know, he was studying an animal. Nice. And, uh, you know, like this, this is what mammals do, and this is why they do this, and, da, 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 and just basically walking his knowledge about primates forward. And, 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 you know, it's 
convincing and written in like very accessible language. It was like a bestseller. It was a big book at the time. And his second book, which I don't think I've ever read that one. Uh, his name is uh, Desmond Morris. But his second book was called The Human Zoo. Mm. And I'm not sure exactly what that is about. I'd have to go and look it up. But I love this idea of looking at people as if, if you were going to put us in a zoo tomorrow, if you put it, if you put, if you're going to be humane uh, to, you know, if you're going to be humane, which is kind of a funny way to use it to chimpanzees, you're going to try to find what's their habitat like? Um, what makes them aggressive? What makes them not aggressive? What makes that, what, how do they, what do they need for their communities to work? Uh, for their social system, it has a structure. If you do something to it, is something. If you take someone out, you may have to replace place with something else or manage that. I'm sure, like uh, your your uh, Jane Goodalls and all that kind of stuff, could tell us you all about what that what that is. You know, like their whole community and how it's stuck and what kind of food they need. And there's there's all kinds of things that chimpanzees need so that they just don't go ape ape shit, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> uh, I'm just a man, thing of dad jokes today, but uh, they are certain. And if to basically make it so like these chimps can be okay in this unideal situation. Yeah. And, and so what would you do that? I think if you're being humane to humans, you would do the same thing. Like what do what does, what does this species need? Um, what does it always do? And I, that's why I like I like evolutionary psychology. The way of men was very much based on off of evolutionary psychology and the idea that like, okay, what what have people been doing? We have so much data. We have thousands and thousands of years of data of what people always do. Yeah. And it's like, they, will they reliably, if you make a big enough group, will they reliably break into smaller groups? Yes. Uh, if you like basic things like that, you know, like, because they want some kind of autonomy and they're going to like they're everyone wants to distinguish themselves and whatever. And there are certain ones that are leaders and certain ones that are followers. And there's, there's going to be all these dynamics and it's not yeah. like everyone is exactly the same, but there are patterns. And if, if we were going to create better, you know, a philosophy for the future, which is kind of what our project is in a way, um, or, a, a philosophy of the future, not the philosophy for all mankind. Right. That's, that's <laughs> but if you're going to create a philosophy for humans that would better, it would take all these things into account. And, and religion is actually one of those as well. I mean, it, do humans create religion? Yes, always. Uh, that's, that's, that is not negotiable. Uh, and, and we've seen it obviously with things like as uh, your James Lindsay would, would say the the Gnostic woke stuff. All those people are atheists, but yet they're probably more religious than most Christians. Right. And you know, so they they will create religious ideals and all those kind of things. They'll do the same things over and over again. So why would you not look at what humans always do and then try and figure out how to work within the confines of your actual species? Yeah, and and not make your philosophy at odds with those things. One of the most amusing works i read uh in in the research for a project i've been working on for the last six months was a um was actually a frankfurt school marxist work called the dialectic of enlightenment by um theodore adorno and max horkheimer okay and it was a very pessimistic work uh amusingly because they were very much attached to the ideal and the goal of the enlightenment 
which involves demystifying the world, breaking ourselves away from mythology. Mm-hmm. But the problem they identified was that uh, the Enlightenment itself ossified into its own mythology and in fact had to do so. And for them, this was this source of pessimism, like, oh, gosh, we, we still want to do this, but we have no idea how it's going to be possible to break free of myth. And it's like the other, the other alternative that someone could read this and take away with is, or we could just embrace myth then. If it's inevitable, then why are you running so hard from who you are? You know, um, you, you don't need to be you know, Simba off in the jungle running away from, you know, your your rightful place as a as a, a lion in his case, or a, just a human being, uh, a very complex, tricky mammal. Uh, yeah, r- right. Yeah. <laughs> Suppo- he was supposed to be a warrior prince. Come on. Uh, <laughs> really, supposedly, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, like we, we can just, there's nothing wrong with just embracing you know, that that zoological foundation and i think people view it as limiting in this very naively grand view of the possibilities that they're losing and there's so much intricacy and complexity uh in the possibilities within the constraints of being a human being um as well one of my favorite um Contemporary philosophers, Matthew Crawford, wrote a little bit about this in one of his works. I don't remember which one, about how the complex possibilities of music often arise from the limitations of the instruments themselves. Uh, no, I think we talked about this in a podcast a long time ago about art. And you said something about how I'd have to go back this is from like a year and a half ago about how, oh, give me a. a you know, three foot by six foot canvas. And yeah. I can immediately begin talking about competition. <laughs> I was going to jump in and say the same thing. Infinite, give me infinite space. You don't know where to start. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You need, you, you need art needs limitations. Uh, it needs something, some like limitations of form, which is sort of a solution to, to circle back uh, yeah. to the problem of nausea that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre was talking about, about how the nausea is, this dizzying feeling of the infinite uh, possibilities stretching out before us mm-hmm. w- when we understand the true weight of our responsibility in becoming who we are. And that can actually be a kind of paralytic oh, to many people. But it's like but, but the possibilities aren't infinite in the vast sense. Now they are infinite in the Zeno's paradox limited sense of uh, you know within the constraints of humanity within a chessboard you know the number of possible moves are still very close to infinite and the possible ways you can live your life the things you can do the things you can become as a zoological human are still in- incredibly broad and wide ranging and there's still a lot of responsibility there. It's just not lordly responsibility. It's not deific responsibility, if that's the right conjugation for that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are people at a level that have a greater responsibility, uh, you know, people who rule 
nations and whatever. I mean, Elon Musk. For the, yeah, Elon Musk has, has, a, has an opportunities to do very big things that could influence things in very big ways. I mean, uh, the average person, how much are they going to, are they influencing the trajectory of mankind? Probably not a lot. Um, yeah. You know, the, but, you know, but why are you trying to, why is that the goal? You know? Right. I mean, for every person, that can't be the goal. Most people don't want that kind of responsibility. Like you said, that, uh, you know, like uh, most people, there are a lot of people who don't want to, I mean, a guy I live with doesn't want to be a manager at work because he doesn't want that kind of responsibility. <laughs> you know, he's supposed to go in and do his shit to go home. Uh, you know, it's uh, not everyone wants that on their shoulders. And so like, and that's very natural again to the human species that there are going to be people who want to take that on people who don't, we don't all want to take it on. We're not all right. trying to be, top dog in every single way. I mean, I'm happy to give away lots of things to specialists. Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's, that's great. But uh, as a guideline for some of this stuff, uh, one of the other books that I was going to bring up, um, I bought this just in case it becomes a hate book that I'm not allowed to buy anymore. Uh, but this was referenced and I've used it for years, but I never really bought it until we had started having this discussion recently. Um, it was referenced in the blank slate. And it's a book called Human Universals. Probably can't see it. Probably not focus. But um, it's by Donald E. Brown. And he went, he was skeptical of what he was doing. Uh, he, he felt that he he was uh, working through anthropological things. And they, they try to have a cultural explanation for everything. That's the prime, prime thing. And he's just like, went through databases of human behaviors and, and uh, studies and so forth. Like what, what do you, and found that, you know, there are certain things that all human societies do. You know, they will come up with something in this realm that always, like, this is, this is one of, one of them, obviously, that I've used in the past is uh, men always have political power. In every, every human society that has ever really been successful for any amount of time, uh, that's, that's a human universal. But also, rape is prescribed. Like, the, like you're not. They, you don't rape within your own community. That's considered bad always. Right um, now, whether you raid the other community and rape all their women, that's 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 up for grabs. But well, it's like, like it's like murder. It's like the, yeah. there are, there are people who are protected citizens, and then there are outlaws who are yeah. outside of the protection of the law. Um, yeah, uh, there's and there's so many things like that. I mean, talk, he goes in to talk about language, and there's certain even like things of grammar that they've found that. All societies come up with words for certain kinds of things to distinguish this from that. Uh, he was talking about colors, every, everything that humans do always. And in this list of universe, he actually has a chapter in here, which I hadn't read until I bought it recently, but it's a chapter where he describes, he, he basically throws out everything that he, he knows 100% for sure. And there are many other things you could probably add, but he does a description of the universal people. Like mm -hmm. if you were to make a universal human, what would that group of people do always? Um, and so it's, it's too long to read because it's like, you know, like 10 pages of like always summarizing all his research. But it, I think things like that are a starting place for like, hey, well, let's make a realistic society based on what we actually are. Right. And then, you know, obviously you can say this, then you can make fine line things of what you think is best for right now and in our environment for where we are, you know, but to have this basis based on all, all, all human societies that have ever been studied 
is is pretty good data uh, to use. And it just strikes me as very odd that we don't, uh, I mean, we know why, uh, you know, it, we, we know why we're not using it. But like I said, there was a big push to start talking about humans that way. And it was from the science community. Like it was from a, a not uh, religious perspective. It was from a data-driven perspective. Like, oh, the, these are the things we always do. Here's how we can explain what we are. Yeah. And I think that's just a great, that's a, it's always been with me as like, that's how I like, that's how I look at people. And I think that's a, a solid way to, to craft a, a philosophy. Like, what do we always do? And, you know, we always talk about, it comes back to the body. And you talk about it in your essay. And one of the reasons we're talking about this is uh, that uh, uh, Chris has been working on this essay for our book that we're trying to finish up to put out uh, as soon as we can. And, uh, yeah, it's about f f solar phenomenology and, and uh, placing uh, what we're doing here in the history of philosophy. And uh, it, there is a whole seg section in that about the importance of the body. And how that, how our relationship with our body influences our, the philosophy that we create, and the way that we see the world, and so forth. And and I, again, that's that's our limitation, and that's again one of the things that we found that doesn't work when you when you ignore the human animal. You get things like the the thing that we've talked about a bunch in the group, like well, encourage women to not have kids until they're forty. Uh, you know, because they, they encourage them to have the work of their careers and then not have kids until they're 40. Well, that's actually not how the human animal works. Uh, that doesn't work out for a lot of people. So that created a generation of probably very sad people who thought they were going to be able to pop out kids at 45. And that's not real uh, for most of them. I mean, there'll be like, there's, you know, anomalies and like rare cases and things and where, where people just spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars to try and make it happen. But that wasn't a realistic thing to do because we're still the same animal. Right. You know, and there's and many, the, yeah, many, many such cases. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the, this sort of goes back to the, so much of the w women going into the workforce and giving up uh, childbirth. It, th there's like a martyr like quality. And you see this in the, uh, in the um, queer movement in particular, where, mm -hmm that we're sacrificing ourselves on the altar of progress in this pursuit of, of power to transform ourselves into whatever we want to become. And we know it won't work the first time around and perhaps even not the second or third or fourth time around, but our, our human sacrifices, our experimental uh, attempts at self-transformation violating these constraints that had, uh, that had, um, chained us down to our biological origins um you know we can we can you know slowly saw away at these chains and unlock uh godlike powers to become masters of nature masters of ourselves to to become self-creating animals and i i think the the uh like knockdown argument against that it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before perception oh. is that um you know we are we're perceiving our powers of seeing the world and of thinking are themselves constrained by our subjective nature and that might be why healthy strong um people who are are doing well don't seem to entertain these fantasies 
in the way that other people might. Yeah. I mean, you get into a sentiment thing. You're like, I have to destroy the world right. to be happy. I have to remake the world in my own image uh, so that I can be happy is, is the, yeah. it, it's always a bad, that, that's, that's going to create some trouble if you put that person in any kind of power. Uh, right. But uh, which is what, you know, is happening, you know, in, in many places. Uh, put, put whatever, uh, I, I brought this up twice now on two different podcasts, but the, uh, uh, whoever that guy who wrote Sapiens is, um, oh God, you've all know Harari, yeah, yeah, I, I like uh, the, the, I want to call him Noah Sferatu. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. all know Sferatu, because <laughs> I mean, yeah. dude, it really looks like ah, like like he's yeah. just a hideous little gay man who's like like I'm like don't give that man any kind of power and don't let him describe yeah. the human animal because he does not know what it is. Uh, no. Like he does not know what it is at its finest point. He's mad about it. No, and and it's worth it's worth mentioning here because we were talking about statistics before. People like Yuval Noah Harari, and even Steven Pinker. Much as I absolutely love his uh, blank slate, um, like you can't fully understand the human animal or or a given human animal from statistics alone. They can be a fantastic check against um, really really bad ideas, and that's like what Steven Pinker did so masterfully in the blank slate. He says. Um, your ideas are wrong and here's the data that shows why it's wrong. Right. And he just uh, like, I, I feel whatever that book was published feels like the date that blank slateism died. I don't know how any blank slate argument can survive that, but you can't take it. It survives because you don't actually have to be rational. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, Going back to human universals, I suppose. But, yes. um, but like th th these, these data, you can't construct a positive concept of what a human is from these data. There's this perhaps one of the most amusing stories in all of philosophy um, that uh, Plato was in the um, um, school teaching his students and they were talking about definitions and they were talking about what it was to be an, uh, a human being. And he defined a human being as a featherless biped. And uh, the, the OG troll of his day, uh, even more so than Socrates, uh, some, some people in the chat I'm sure already know this, and we should read some of the chat. Diogenes of Sinope comes bursting through the door, holding this still twitching plucked chicken, saying, behold, Plato's man. And Eke <laughs> Homo. And is parading up and down with this <laughs> naked chicken, <laughs> and it's like the, the the data didn't quite account for that. But uh, right, thank you, Diogenes, for that very valuable contribution. But uh, yeah, it is he was a wild character. Not not admirable, but fun. He had his funny moments. Yeah, yeah. Well, tro trolls are funny sometimes. So until they're just annoying, uh, yeah. Until they're not productive, uh, you know. Yeah. He was anti-productive. It was m masturbating in public, throwing poop at people. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, had his, he had his he had his funny moments, like his run-in with Alexander the Great, which was yeah. epic. But uh, yeah, not. Uh, I mean, if people uh, on this point of universalism, people talk about uh, uh, one of the phrases you might hear uh, among the descendants of the French Enlightenment, the, the Thomas Paine types and, and those sorts. It's talking about being citizens of the world. Yes. Um, 
that phrase originated from Diogenes. He was he was the first citizen of the world, maybe maybe the first uh, uh, humanist in this sense. Um, and too, so, took it too far. Obviously, he was masturbating in the street, and like, okay, you embrace it, you're coming. You, know, you okay. over you over embraced your human nature. <laughs> too far. Well, like, well, I, I I don't even know if he was embracing. I think he was trying to break it to some degree. Yeah, um, he was doing like sociology 101 student like experience you know the type where the the teacher tells all the sociology students to go out and do stupid random things that break people's social norm expectations right and it feels so profound it's like literally the least profound thing you could imagine um but that was that was what you we 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 did that when i was in school like oh we're gonna lay down in a walkway or or you know some stupid stuff yeah Uh, it feels like that was a lot of what he was doing to break people out of their um, dishonest conflation of custom with objective reality. But there's nothing wrong with custom. There's nothing that custom is a part of who we are. And that's a part of how we live. Right. And as we said, with all these things, there's a, there's a degree towards Mm -hmm. it's too far. Right. Now, like you can put humans at the center of the universe because we would naturally do that because we're humans, but there's there's a too far. There's a place where it doesn't work anymore, right? Where it's no longer functional. And same thing with like uh, you know I'm not. I, I think the dream of uh, humanity is we create tools that make us more powerful and better at the things that we can do already. Uh, you know, like I, there was a lot of that in the um, Vivaki talks. Uh, the way we use think, to think with tools and, and so right. forth and language being a tool. Um, and, you know, the dream of I, I am sympathetic to a certain degree with the whole like cyborg thing, the cyborg realm of uh, transhumanism to a certain point, because obviously like that's tools. Right. We're just making more and more tools to make us better and compete at a higher level. Yes, you know, and that's 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 what humans have literally always done. That is in our nature to do that. Like I have eyes, but they can't see an X-ray vision. You know, like <laughs> you know, like of course, or right. well, well, that that well, would be next level. Well, that you know, level me up, you you, know? You, the 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 masculine ideals are always depicted with uh, in, in armor. They're soldiers. You know, the Spartan oh, yeah. phalanx and stuff. What do our modern soldiers look like? They don't have X-ray goggles. But they do have goggles of a certain kind. Yes. Um, and that makes them look more badass. It is the ultimate flex uh, yeah. in, in certain communities. If you personally own oh, what are called antlers, which are the, the quad sites. So, so you have panoptic vision. Yeah. Uh, those things are like, like $43,000 yeah. uh, plus the other equipment that you need to mount it and the thing on your gun and like all this other stuff. Um, right. That is that is a big flex. That is... Uh, they are they are cyborgs you know they've got the armor they've got all this crazy electronic equipment that augments their abilities to to do things and um you know perhaps we could delve into this in a in a future podcast i don't think we have time now but uh it does bring up a question uh about technology and our relationship with technology yeah and it it's I i started off the bat with heidegger uh, it's something Heidegger had a lot to say about as well. And there's, you know, people like J.R. Tolkien or Heidegger 
um, they don't seem against technology full stop, but there is a, like we were talking about, you know, there, there's a, there's a place where it goes too far and it's like the nature of the technology itself. Um, and you, you get this sense that with transhumanists in particular, um, where it's, it's no longer about augmenting human aims and interests, but the technology takes on a purpose of itself yeah. of its own and humans become an impediment to that. Yeah. And that's the, that's the problem there. It's like the, the making humans be able to do, I mean, there's so much promise that technology offered before it went to this dark place that we're talking about now. I mean, you know, well, like, well, we could regrow a limb for someone who got hurt in a car accident. That's or how they sell it to you. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's all stuff that like makes sense. You know, like that's like, off every, like would Gilgamesh have signed off on that? Yes. <laughs> you know, like, of course I would. You know, like uh, everyone would do that. Uh, everybody in all of human history would do that, except they'd probably say it was possessed by witches or whatever. But like, it's, you, you, you would probably, you know, say, oh, can I, would my daughter like to actually have an arm? Yes. Um, you know, most people would do that. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's within the realm. Making a superhuman is not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against that. Uh, you know, like there's things that we can do that does that do that to a certain degree, but also there's unintended consequences to all these things. And especially, and that's what I think, I hate the word conservative with the fire of a thousand suns, but the, yeah, the, there is a an argument for slow your roll on certain things because if you look at what the internet did, I mean, obviously we're talking on the internet right now. Right. Uh, it's the only reason why we know each other. And, uh, you know, it, the only reason I know most of my friends, really. Uh, but the unintended consequences, okay, well, obviously, like, widespread porn, widespread, like, all uh, the social media, the way it messed up, messes up people's brains and like all the other things that are going on as consequences of these things. And that's why it's sometimes helpful for these things to roll out slowly. Right. So you can tweak those things instead. Um, but unfortunately, another thing of human nature is that the way that we compete is at such a level, at such a fast pace that people are like, they don't want anyone else to beat them. So they'll do things that are foolish just to get ahead, which is why we have atomic bombs. <laughs> yeah, like, right. you know, like that's well, it's, wasn't yeah. that the problem with testosterone back in the eighties? Like there is, there's actually nothing wrong with men injecting themselves with testosterone. Right. Uh, like, like especially during a time where testosterone levels are on a consistent downhill slope for most men. Right. But well, the they would say that that's unnatural, and you should accept your life. Well, well but but. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a question about how natural that is, and anyways, but right. like, yeah. um, but like, there was a problem with perverse incentives in the power build lifting community, where it's like, if if one guy is taking X amount, oh yeah, if you take two X, you can beat him, yeah, and so you like you 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 have to take an unhealthy quantity in order to even be competitive within these domains, right. if you're doing that. And it can feel like technology is getting that way. I was, um, I actually, I just turned it off because it was distracting. Um, I only have a smartphone uh, because my current employer uh, required an app on a smartphone in order to clock in and clock out. Prior to that, I was using a flip phone. 
I went to the store and I bought a $30 flip phone and it was fantastic. It was great. Um, but then I got a, a, a new employer and, uh, okay, now I'll, I'll, I'll make the jump. Um, but, and, and if, if for some reason I either leave this employer or if they change their policy or how they do clock phone, I, I will go back to a flip phone or, or, or a Nokia brick because it's, it's great. Is this thing convenient? Is it great to be able to look up, you know, Perseus project Greek stuff in three seconds? Is it be able, great to be able to pull up Wikipedia articles on a whim or take quick high quality photos and videos of my kids or the weather or projects and then post uh, a, something I'm struggling with to Instagram and have five really knowledgeable friends all give me real-time updates on how to fix that. That right. is fantastic. That is, that is like fantastic augmentation of our ability. Um, but there are costs too. You know? Oh, hundred percent. And that's like, I've, I've thought about, I haven't done it yet. I have ones that are around, you know, you accumulate phones after a while. Um, and, uh, I have an older phone that I use for the drone that I never take out. Uh, mm. but I mean, I could plug that in and have that be my app phone because there's some apps that just don't operate well on the computer. Mm. Uh, Instagram being one of them, it's just, it's difficult to, to upload in certain ways, especially reels. And, uh, you know, have that be my app computer and my app phone and then walk around with one that doesn't have a lot of crap on it. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, just so it's not just such a mind numbing thing that's sitting there every time that I have to uh, cook uh, something in the kitchen or whatever, you know, like I, that's, that's one of those things, but um, that's beyond the scope of our, our, our thing, obviously, but it, it, obviously the unintended consequence of the technology are there. Yeah. Uh, the only one other thing I wanted to wrap up with was just, if you really, I think so much of the character and aesthetic of this movement, maybe that's partially my influence, uh, but it, of solar idealism, it has been, you know, a little bit of a late 60s, early 70s thing, um, which is just something that I vibe with really hard. But there's also a, there was a time when our visions of the future were about all the things that we just said, about humans living as they, have always lived, but with augment, augmented abilities right. and augmented technology, uh, like the Jetsons. Like you're still going to have a mother and a father, and the father's going to go to work, and the mother's going to stay at home. And yeah. she has things to do her dishes for her and whatever, and, and she just has like a little thing to fly her to the store and all that stuff. You know, to do all the things that women do, but she's doing them with you know like advanced technology. And the same right. thing, and they have their kids, whatever. Uh, Star Trek is the same way. You know, like men are still men and women are still women. And we're still the human animals. We're going into space and have the same needs. They're, they're fulfilled by different things or simulated. In many cases, they have simulators and all kinds of things that do things. But they're, it's clear that we still have this, we're the same, still the same animal going out into space and doing the same things. Right. Uh, well, we're going to go out and make war with this other group of creatures, uh, the Klingons or whatever. Uh, you know, we have to go have conflicts all over the habit and have adventures. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, there's the romantic, romantic interests, all kinds of things, all the things that are very, very human. And 
it's only like, I think in the past, you know, maybe 30 years, 30, 20, 30 years, that it's shifted more towards something darker than that and, and, and away from human. But I, I think most people are, are sci-fi visions, like men and women are still men and women and humans are still humans. And we still behave that way. And I think that if we can, that's the futurism that I want. Uh, you know, like let's go to, we don't have to hate technology or this, this thing that's become uh, on the right. You know, the, the right or whatever, the return or whatever we have to return you like never come out of the forest, whatever. Yeah. But that's not what humans Return do. to monkey. Yeah. 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 And that's not what humans are. That's not what they do. Right. And we need to, you know, re recalibrate to what we, our, our species actually does zoologically. And then, you know, send that into space. Yeah. <laughs> Monkeys shot in the space. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's the end of the meme. It's the so the return to monkey, and then it jumps to the Russian monkey getting yeah, yeah. Return to monkey, monkey going to space. Monkey yeah. goes to space. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's I mean, that's really where we are just shooting monkeys into space. Uh, but uh, it, you know, it's it's uh, you know, I think that's the, the way. You know, like let's and if we can read give that kind of dream more traction and, and explore that more. And uh, I think that that's a good way forward in the future. Yeah. And I, and I think embracing that there's like a tension um, between laws and the society. I, I believe it was Nietzsche who wrote about this. It's like laws don't tell you about, the uh the nature of a society laws tell you the nature of the neighbors of a society um you know the the uh you know if if one if tribe a drinks a lot tribe b will have strong laws prohibiting drinking uh because that differentiates us from them as like the old think, huh that's the old testament Right, right. <laughs> Differentiating, uh, but but I think Nietzsche was tracing it out to like Greece and the Romans and, and other groups as well. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, as technology gets more advanced, it will be more important to have, you know, zoological humanistic foundations in our ideals, uh, not, not in order to have a, a ground to reject the technology from but as a as a sort of island of sanity that we can hold on to and stay tethered to while we use the technology um in a in a slightly safer manner you know like drinking drinking is a very uh dangerous and probably just overtly bad thing nonetheless many people do it very functionally and we do it functionally because we have certain cultural standards like you don't drink and drive. You don't drink before five o'clock. You know, you uh, like there are certain expectations that if someone violates, they're a problem, not just legally, but like socially and culturally. Well, yeah, and they're, they're, they're best practices because yeah. people, people have discovered over many years, if you start drinking before five o'clock, you're going to start drinking at noon. Yeah, and then start drinking at nine a.m. and that, and that's how you get to a very bad place. Right. So they cut off at five o'clock. So like, uh, yeah. you know, like that's because that's kind of what people do. And and, and so like so much of this internet stuff is like it feels I think very pathological because it is so new, mm -hmm. and like so all the pathologies just run rampant. 
but like i think reminding ourselves of you know our, our zoological human nature and the way that the internet can hack that and break us through that um can give us a sort of a, a sort of p position us in a place where we can take the best from the internet and also protect ourselves from the the dangers with with certain best practices and rules of etiquette and so forth yeah no absolutely and and if there's anything that proves what kind of monkeys we are uh, is the internet <laughs> marketing marketing is carnal truth i've always said that like uh marketing will they will find a way to to make the monkey do the thing and it knows what the monkey wants and uh you know like like my explore feed is like no one should ever see that uh like, <laughs> like what did i click on what did that click on oh, it's fun. um yeah. i'm like i gotta figure out how to clean that out uh but you know there's stuff like that i mean it just it knows what what does the monkey want you know, like it, it'll find, and they're, they're, they're looking for that. That's what marketers do. Uh, you know, so it, yeah. it's, it's one of the things, but I, I think, uh, where we came down to in this, so we can wrap it up is that, um, one of the slogans uh, for the order of fire has been, uh, it's it worked in our rituals and so forth is born of the earth, reaching forever upward. And that is, that stuck with me when I wrote it because, that acknowledges that Lord of the earth side that we're tethered to, we are tethered to the earth. We come from the earth. Uh, even if we were, you know, recolonized Mars or whatever, we are tethered to this state that this, this animal that came from. And we're tethered to our biological history, no matter yes. what planet we're on. Exactly. And so we, we, we are tethered to that. And that is part of what we are. And we can't escape that because we, we don't know even what that means as you've said earlier with bats and whatever, like what does it mean to not be that? We have no idea. Uh, and it's probably bad because we don't know how to process it because <laughs> our brains will be the same. Uh, but you know, like, so I like that, like reaching forever upwards, but we're still you know, tethered to what we actually are. Yeah. And, and, and the better. fact that we're tethered um, gives us something to strive upward toward. Like the, the, the this goes back to, not to bring abstract philosophy back into it, but this this old problem in in Christian theology, and you hear it from Muslims too, is um, God must be unchanging because He is perfect. And I th I think this is even a Platonic dialogue. If a perfect being changed, it would necessarily be less perfect. So the the this this of course I I don't know whether that's a problem or not in it in a changing world in a changing environment where perfection is not just an innate quality, but the, the status of a relationship between the thing and its environment. But regardless, there's always something to strive for, which I think is makes life a lot better than, you know, th there's nothing more like deflating than being in some competitive pool and then reaching the top and becoming the best. And you're like, well, now what, you know, um, and that is the most human, again, that's, that's one of the most human things in the world, because they, uh, if Mr. Smith from the matrix were to hear that, he would say, it's <laughs> so ridiculous right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you've reached the top and you're still not satisfied. What is wrong with you? Uh, yeah. but, uh, that is, that is part of being human. And so if you don't factor that in, you're going to create a lot of trouble. And that's yeah. what they've talked about with, you know, when AI comes around or whatever, and 
it puts starts putting people out of work. It's like, well, if you you can give them money, but they have to have purpose. They don't know how to not have. Yeah, if you don't have to go to work, why would you? Unless because no one would choose to go work at Seven Eleven. I mean, if you and I might choose, I would still write because I can't not. And uh, <laughs> you know, I would still try to do creative things because that's super fun. I mean, I made that little intro for no reason. No one cares. That was, uh, awesome. I, I, that was super I, cool. I thought it was cool. I, I, there was an day, hour yeah. today. I'm like, what if I do this? And I had so much fun doing that. Uh, I, I can't not do that. Uh, but but uh, you know, like, there's a lot of things that get done in the world that no one would do on purpose, <laughs> you know? And uh, why, and then what do these people do all day? And then what, what do they become? Do they just play video games? Do they just, what, what do they just, yeah, substance abuse? It's like, what, what happens? It's a, it's, that's a big human problem. And if you don't deal with the human animal, then you're going to be, it's going to be messy, right. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, I'm sure you have to go soon. And uh, uh, thank you, everybody who is uh, has been listening to this. I think it was a, a good podcast, and I, I like that we're digging into, I think, maybe some things that maybe other people aren't talking about uh, or taking them from a different angle, and I, I'm really enjoying that. And anyway, if you, if you like this, uh, we're doing this every Thursday now, and we will continue to do it. Uh, uh, until we decide not to. Yeah, but, like, uh, like, comment, and, and if you think it's valuable, yes, it doesn't hurt to share it with other people because it does seem like a lot of people uh, do prefer long-form stuff. This is the good part of the internet, these long-form. It's why Joe Rogan got the following he has because he brings on interesting people to have interesting conversations, not these short, crappy TikTok things that melt your brain for the CCP or whatever. You know, you know. Uh, not, not that you can't do short form stuff, but that's, you know, it, mo for the most part, it brings people to the more valuable long form stuff. Hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully that's the, hopefully that's the purpose yeah. of it. Yeah, Because it, it is hard to say something smart in 15 seconds. It's, uh, it might be impossible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> might be impossible. <laughs> you can you can give people the impression of having learned something. The, yes. the the internet is full of feeding the addiction of feeling like you're learning something right. without retaining or learning anything. Unfortunately, right. but exactly exactly conversation for another time. Sorry. To All right. Well, thank you everybody <laughs> for watching. Uh, you know, like and subscribe uh, the channel. We actually got over a thousand followers, so we're like actually uh, moving on up in internet land here on this channel. Uh, so. Thank you very much and stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.